Hey everybody, welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 50 with Brian Gottlieb. Brian is the host of two podcasts, the Arena Decklist Podcast and the Head Games Podcast. He is a brilliant podcaster, a play-by-play commentator on the Star City Games circuit, and a professional lawyer. I interviewed Brian for the first time back in episode 34. In a lot of ways, this episode is a continuation of that discussion. Brian shares with us his content creation goals. He also shares his dreams and aspirations for the future. Another part of this discussion is getting to know Brian's magic origin story. Brian also speaks his mind about the future of the game and his relationship with his wife, who is instrumental to his magic journey. Music in this episode is brought to you by Kupla. Kupla is a supremely talented artist, and his music has become part of my everyday listening rotation. Check out Kupla's latest album, Imaginary, on all the places you find music. Humans of Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball is the place to go for all of your magic needs, with a huge selection of sealed product, singles, accessories, and more. Channel Fireball has some of the best magic strategy content out there. Whether it's articles by Paulo Vitor Demo de Rosa, set reviews by LSV, a control walkthrough video with Gabriel Nassif, you can find the perfect resource to level up your game. And it's all free. So please, show them some love, hit up channelfireball.com, and while you're at it, support them in this show by purchasing some sweet magic product. The new set Modern Horizons is on the horizon, pun intended. I'm sure you need to buy them somewhere, so why not make it channelfireball.com. Humans and Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live transforms the way you interact with magic broadcasts, complete with player decklists, real-time standings, metagame analysis, and more. You can find Cardboard Live on the biggest Magic live streams today, including the Star City Games Open Series, Magic's Mythic Championships, the MPL Weeklies, and the upcoming Magic Fest Washington DC, brought to you by the fine folks at ChannelFireball.com. When you watch any of these events live on Twitch, Cardboard Live will be there, waiting for you. It's all part of the wonderful Magic viewing experience. And remember, you can use Cardboard Live for any live Magic stream, whether it's Magic Arena, Magic Online, or your local paper tournament. If you're a streamer and you're streaming Magic, you're going to love it. It's easy to use and completely free. To get started, visit Cardboard.Live. Once again, that's Cardboard.Live. And one more thing, I'm working on the Humans of Magic book which is a collection of interviews with the finest magic people on the planet. The book features John Finkel, Jerry Thompson, Luis Scott Vargas, Emma Handy, and other brilliant minds of the game. Simply an all-star lineup, and it's the best place to find their insights on magic and life itself. The book ties together common themes from the original interviews and introduces brand new stuff that you can't find anywhere else. As a thank you to listeners of this show, I'm giving away free copies of the Humans of Magic book. To win a free copy, visit the website at humansofmagic.com. Go there, join my mailing list, and you will be entered into the draw. One more time, because they say repetition is key, humansofmagic.com. The Humans of Magic book, it's coming soon. Don't miss it.
All right, let's get into it. This is Humans of Magic with Brian Gottlieb. Hey, Brian, how's it going, man? Uh, everything is great, James. I appreciate you having me on for another go round with you. This is exciting. No, I really enjoyed it the first time. And it's crazy thinking about it because I think it's been about a year since we last recorded. And we were just talking about how time really flies. And a lot of things have happened for you in the past year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, my life has taken some pretty dramatic turns. I think the last time we spoke, I, I either had just left or knew I was leaving uh, my legal job. And like I was kind of getting ready for this next thing and didn't really know what it would be. But yeah, things have things have changed dramatically over the course of the last year. And when you told me it had been a year since we spoke, I was kind of dumbfounded because it feels like it's been like three years or four years because so many things have happened in the meantime. I find it really interesting to talk to you now because when we first recorded, you were telling about some of your aspirational goals to get into coverage, to do more of what you love full time. And you had also talked about some of the the challenges and lack of fulfillment in terms of your role at the time, which was as a lawyer. And on the surface, at least, it seems like all of these things that you wanted to do have now come true. So I, I don't know, like, has it been everything that it's cracked up to be? And how, how are you feeling now versus a year ago? It's like night and day. I, I love what I'm doing. I really do enjoy it. That's not to say like every day is perfect and there's not stressful things about it. And, uh, you know, I certainly have mostly taken a pay cut, maybe not from my, my last legal job, but certainly from some of my earlier legal jobs. I, have, I am not making the same money I previously did. And all of that is completely fine. Uh, I wouldn't change it for anything. And it, it's it's strange how much... This has always been like a background goal of mine. Like a lot of times when it felt like I was playing magic, it, it was never that I wanted to be like a platinum pro or just play magic all the time and chain a bunch of pro tours together. It was that I wanted access to this. I wanted to be able to share my voice and do content creation and do commentary. And it feels like just all at once, all this stuff unlocked for me. It's kind of unbelievable. And I don't know what I did to get so lucky. Obviously, I owe a huge portion of uh, my success to Jerry, and I w will own up to that a million percent of the time. He just basically took a lark on me when uh, I don't think anyone would have expected him to, and it, I think it's worked out really well for both of us. I think he made a good call, um, but I, I still think about it all the time that just how phenomenally uh, lucky I am that he decided to call me up and say, hey, you want to do this podcast? Absolutely. He's a good judge of people, and I think he picked the right person. Uh, well, I will leave that up to him. Next time you talk to him, he can tell you whether or not he picked the right person. But I know from my perspective, he picked the right person. I can tell you that. Right. And when we last talked, you and your wife were considering moving to Seattle, and it appears now that you have, because in the time since then, I think we met once over there when I was visiting. And mm -hmm. you were originally from New York, and you had been in New York for... I'm going to assume for a lot, a large part of your adult life. So how, how has Seattle been? How have you enjoyed the environment over there going from East coast to West coast? 
Seattle is one of the greatest scams in the history of mankind. And let me tell you why, James. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm putting this out there. Okay. Maybe I'm breaking this. This, this is going to be the first strike hot take that I've been waiting for <laughs> in Humans of Magic. Um, Seattle is just this incredible scam perpetrated by all the people who have been living here because the first thing you say, the first thing anyone says to you when you say you're from Seattle, they go, oh, it rains all the time there. That's always, I, I mean, to a person, because I travel a lot, I talk to taxi drivers, I'm getting picked up from the airport all the time. That's always where the conversation goes. Where are you from? From Seattle. Oh, doesn't it rain all the time there? Seattle is one of the most amazing places on the planet. And I've been to a lot of places now, too, so I feel pretty comfortable making that call. Uh, the weather is fantastic. Certainly there's rain, but there's way more nice days than crappy days. The surrounding area is amazing. There's all this incredible nature. There's great uh, snowboarding just down the road, basically, and hiking. And uh, I have this beautiful view of, of a lake from my deck. And it, it's all these things that I did not expect it to be whatsoever before I got here. Um, and and that, certainly that's had a huge effect on my happiness as well. I think Seattle's just kind of this incredible place. Uh, and again, I feel super fortunate that things worked in such a way that we ended up here because it was honestly kind of on a lark. Like my wife and I were just saying, you know, we're ready to go. Where are we going next? And she just applied some places and it ended up, we were here and it's, it's been great. I, I can't recommend enough that you at least visit Seattle. Um, it, it is expensive to live here. I'll say that, but, uh, a lot of, I mean, most cities are at this point, right? There's very few cheap cities, at least on the coast, maybe in like the Midwest, you can get by in a cheap city. Um, but cheaper than New York, having come from there, I'll say that. So, uh, big, big thumbs up to Seattle overall. That's great. And I, I'm trying to recall, I think you have some pets or maybe a dog or a cat or something in the family as well. Mm -hmm. I have a, a black lab. He's 11 now. He's getting old, but, okay. uh, he's, he's enjoyed Seattle now too. Yeah. I was just going to ask that. I think it's probably a good environment for him too, uh, to just to <laughs> be part of that maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because he, he's having some health issues now. He's got bad hips. So uh, he's on like arthritis medication and can't hike like he used to and can't run around as much. So his life is a little bit more sedentary, which is sad because I think he would really love all that stuff. But in general, you can tell he really uh, he appreciates the warmer weather. He likes like sitting out on the patio with us at night. So I, I think he's a fan of Seattle, too. That's great. And does it help that you and Jerry is are also part in the same city or that you're maybe more connected to certain magic players or companies that make magic now that you're in Seattle? I don't know. I mean, no, it's it's a good question and a good point. Uh, certainly being able to like see Jerry a lot is cool. Not that we don't talk all the time and do commentary together and do a bunch of other things together, but it's nice that we can just grab lunch whenever we want. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of folks here associated with magic. I get to talk with, uh, people from R and D from time to time. And certainly our alumni from the previous game podcast are in town and meet up with, uh, Andrew and majors sometimes and just chat. It's, it's good. Magic does a lot for you in terms of creating a social network wherever you go. And that has felt very pronounced in Seattle for sure. That's great. And you, I take it that you're playing a lot of tournaments as well because when i listen to your podcast or hear about what you're doing on twitter it seems like you're playing at mox you're playing at some of the the gaming stores I, you played in mcq maybe not too long ago stuff like that 
Mm-hmm. I played a couple of MCQs the last two weeks. Uh, both went fine, but no, no blue envelopes. I still most of my play is online. I mean, Arena is just so good, and it's very easy to get in a bunch of games. And I feel like I learn the most um, when I'm engaging with Arena. So that's still where the majority of my play is, and it's awkward in that the incentives to play GPs are mostly gone now and I'm very far away from star city tournaments. And if I am at them, I'm usually commentating them. So I've kind of been missing that big tournament fix that's been absent from my life since I got here, but there's other replacements. And for me, it's not really about tournament goals at this point. It's just about learning as much as possible so I can share that information with my readers and my listeners and arena does a great job of that so it's been totally fine i know you're in seattle now but how much time are you spending outside of it because this new gig that you have as a commentator it seems like you're flying all over the place as well Uh, i travel a lot for sure and it only ends up being about one date per month on the scg tour that I do, but often I transition that into another trip, and uh, my wife travels for work sometimes, and since my schedule is open, I'll often just go with her. Um, So, you know, I went to Vegas on her last two work conferences that she had there for a few weeks. So I'm definitely on the road far more than I ever was previously. Um, I think for Jared, it's kind of like a drop in the hat. He's lived his life on the road for so long now that he's used to it. But there's definitely an adjustment period for me. At first, uh, I was really, really disliking it, quite frankly. It was it was jarring. I wasn't a huge fan of flying. And also, when I started this Star City thing, I had just broken my shoulder. I, I broke my clavicle snowboarding uh, this winter. And so I'm flying in these cramped planes with a broken shoulder and it's just an agony and it's, you know, you're trying to carry around your suitcase and that hurts and you're wearing a backpack and that hurts. So I was just in pain all the time. Um, So it was really tough. It was a really tough start. But as my shoulders healed, as I've gotten used to it, I've learned to be okay with it. it. It's not my favorite thing to do, but I'm figuring out it's fine. I know how to pack for every trip and, uh, you know, it's, it's just an acclimation process, I think. Was there an internal deliberation moment? Just like when you first decided to join the Game Podcast, you were telling me how it was, I mean, it was kind of a no-brainer just to just to do that. But I, I'm assuming this one, it was more of a brainer or more of a decision because even though you really wanted to do commentary, it would involve sacrifices like having to travel and being on the road, so to speak. And I know that you wanted something in which you could be in a more stable position, be based in one place. So was there some kind of internal calculus or was it ever a, a tough decision to actually make this leap? I wouldn't say it went as far as a tough decision just because this was an opportunity that I had wanted for so long. And basically, uh, I was I was going to do it no matter what, pretty much. Like I, I needed to do this to see how I felt about it, if I enjoyed it. And if I had passed on it, I certainly would have regretted it. But these were the things that were certainly like, weighing on me as it started like oh am i going to be okay with all this travel is my wife going to be okay um you know is it actually what's best for both of us and it's still tough to leave her on the weekends like i would obviously prefer to have time with her but we've made it work it's it it's been good um and, and certainly i've enjoyed my time on the scg tour overall once i got over that acclimation period 
Has it been everything that you expected? I, I don't know what I expected. So that's that's what's really hard for me to answer about that. Like I don't I don't really know if I ever wrap my head around exactly what it would be like. Um, I think it feels strange that this was my concern, but for me, before I did it, I was super nervous about doing like ad reads and transitioning and I don't know, just like the little particulars that go into making a flowing broadcast. Cause that was something that was important to me. Like I wanted to bring a lot of professionalism to the table and present a polished product. So I think things like that matter a lot, especially when you're bringing in a new audience, which magic has a lot of right now. There's a lot of new eyes, new ears on the product and it's important to have polish in those situations. And that's the stuff I was worried about. Like, was I going to be able to do these ad reads? Did I understand um, the SCG offerings well enough? And that nervousness lasted like the first two hours we were doing our thing. And after we had covered our first two rounds, I was just like, okay, this is fine. I can do this. I got this. And basically like the threshold is you have to mess up once. And once you get that out of your system, you're just like, okay, this is going to happen from time to time. Nobody actually cares. Just move forward. And then the nerves are completely gone for me at this point. So I, I guess that's a long winded way of saying I, I didn't know what I was looking for. I just had that one little point of concern and it very quickly evaporated. Just out of curiosity, how structured is the, commentary itself do they give you guidelines for what you should say how you should introduce things or what kinds of content you should veer towards or maybe even the chemistry you have with your broadcast partner the only thing that's really shaped is what we are uh, advertising and you know we have points that we want to hit when we're doing those ad reads and as long as you're hitting those points pretty much they trust us to do a good job. I, I mean, I maybe if I was flubbing a lot of things or just generally doing inappropriate stuff on the broadcast, there would be more of a hands-on guidance thing, but it, I, I, ha I really haven't gotten any kind of direction, so I guess things are going well <laughs> as far as that goes. That's great. So really you're saying the nerves are more with the ad reads or maybe some of the things that you had not done before, even though you said you quickly got over it. But as far as the actual commentary goes, that was pretty much fine for you, right? It, it felt easy. Honestly, I, I felt like I fell into it right away. And, you know, that's up to viewers to decide if I'm right. And I actually do do a good job of it. But I, I had thought so much about commentary for years and years and had to myself, analyzed what I liked, what I didn't like, how I thought the game was best presented, that I already had all those questions answered before I ever cast a single match. And I knew how I wanted to do things. I wanted to bring that play-by-play -play feel to the broadcast. I wanted to uh, be very cognizant of what to hit on with my co-caster, when to call them in, um, and to do just do a good job of narrating the flow of the match and doing what I can to generate moments of tension and excitement. And again, I, I'm not going to say whether I passed that marker or not, but that's always been my goal when I'm doing a cast. And I, I try really hard to make it feel like a big time event, make it feel a little bit like a sporting event, because I think it's a, a tried and tested way of doing that kind of presentation. And I hope that comes across when I'm calling a match. I see. This kind of leads me to my next question, which is, 
I think there's a common thing that I sense when I talk to you, which is that whether it's like being a bartender or a poker player or becoming a lawyer, when you put your mind on something, you tend to do fairly well, even though I think you underplay the difficulty involved. So the question is, now that you seem to have hit on the right notes, at least in your own mind of being a commentator, like what's left? What's the road ahead? You strike me as someone that you're looking for the next challenge. So if you feel you're settled in this now and that you kind of have things under control, how do you make things challenging for yourself? And what, what's the next kind of milestone that you're trying to hit? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. And I think you analyzed me very well. I generally move from goal to goal and have something I'm pushing towards all the time. And I, I have a hard time just taking a moment and being like, okay, you did this thing, live in it now, appreciate it. I just kind of move on to what's next for me, what's going to be the next thing I do. And I kind of look at my goals presently as twofold. And the first relates to commentary. And I don't want my commentary to stop at magic. I think I can do other stuff. And that's not to say I'm driving really hard to get into other fields right now or call other games. There's nothing on my radar. But I, I don't think I need to gate myself to only magic. I think there is going to be other opportunities, um, even maybe in more traditional esports. Like I would love to try calling fighting games sometimes. I would need to spend a lot of time preparing. But I, I know basics. I know um, even if I can't implement it, I know generally how fighting game strategy works. So I wonder if I could maybe do a decent job with that. And then, of course, there's other card games that I would love to have some involvement with at some point. Or who knows what the next big thing is? I mean, maybe it's auto chess, right? And that's something I've dabbled in. So I, I wonder what else I can do in the commentary range. And then the other half of my goals really revolve around the brand we've created now. Um and I'm talking about Arena Deckless, as we now refer to it, formerly the game podcast. Um, but we don't want to be just a podcast. There's a lot of things we want to do. And that's a lot of what the rebranding was about, was making sure we were in this space with as many eyes as possible upon us, because there's a lot of projects we are working on. And I don't want to go any further than that, because they're still in the nebulous state. But uh, take it from me that Arena Deckless will do more, be bigger, and be on to other stuff besides just a podcast in the near future. Right. That's awesome. So I know you know you don't want to get into details, but it's it sounds like both the commentary side, you're going to try to grow as a professional. And also on the podcast side, you're probably going to end up doing things other than podcasting or or not the same thing that I've heard for the past six to 12 months, it sounds like. Yeah, there's some of that. Uh, and then maybe just new mediums as well, if we could find a way uh, to get into them, we'll start exploring that. Awesome. Switching gears a little bit, this is something that I had wanted to ask you the first time we talked, but for whatever reason, I think it's just the way it flowed. We never quite got around to it. So I'm hoping this can be sort of an addendum and we'll get back to the magic coverage and your thoughts on the future of magic in a, in a little bit. But I realized when we last talked 
that we talked about your whole life as a kid, you know, realizing that you grew up in a poor household and all that stuff. I, people can go back and listen to that episode if they want to, but we never actually talked about anything magic related. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. As far as your actual involvement in magic and how you got started playing magic. So I'm hoping that we can use this as sort of a, an introduction to Brian as well. Maybe walk me through how you actually got in touch with magic in the first place, you know, all, all the stuff around that. Yeah. So it kind of hit me from two places simultaneously. And I'm actually glad I get a chance to tell this story because I have wanted to share this as a common experience with someone so long. And I've never met someone who found magic the same way I did. Um, and I, I'm hoping maybe someone listens to this and like is like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I've tried to track this down for so long and I can't get it. It's like my golden goose of the internet. Like I search for it at least every six months to see if I can find this article that I'm looking for. And this article in question was from a magazine called Flux. And I've gotten some information on the magazine. It existed for seven issues, bi-monthly issues, was not super, super popular, didn't do particularly well. Um, and it was basically like a video game slash comic book slash music magazine. And they did a article that was basically like, this is Magic the Gathering. This is the rules. Here are the 10 best. I think they had a, like the 10 best commons and the 10 best rares. And I definitely remember like Ali from Cario and Mirror Universe being on the list. Of oh, so this is around Arabian Nights. Yeah, this this is going way back. I, I guess we're up to Legends at this point if we have Mirror Universe too. Right, so, right. Um, and I remember the the best common was Drudge Skeletons in their assessment. <laughs> they had that as their <laughs> number one common. Um, so a much simpler time. But I, I saw this article and – as a kid, like I didn't realize I was a nerd, I don't think, but I, I just, I loved all the nerdy stuff, comic books, games. Um, that was just my jam. Would you say that you were more of a jock when you were younger? Because I remember you mentioning something about your high school football career and how you messed up your body. I know this is kind of going on a tangent, but were you always more on the sporty side or? I was both. I was, I was both simultaneously always. And, uh, I've I've met more and more people because you you often think of it as a dichotomy. You're either one or the other, and that's the way it's always played in like classical media. It's like jocks versus the nerds. But as I talk to more and more people, I realize that a lot of people had the same experience as me, where they were really into both sports and super nerdy stuff like Magic the Gathering. One of my good friends from Albany, uh, all American wrestler at Princeton very close to actually competing in the Olympics uh, and he just loved magic would like leave wrestling practice and and go play magic and this is one of the top wrestlers in the country um, so I, I think there's a lot of people who have that kind of split aspects to, to their personality and I was definitely among them I was doing both wholeheartedly going back to the flux magazine what transpired from that well, I just I just read this article and I was like, oh, my God, I need to play this game like I need to find this. And then this memory sprang up for me and it was a memory of my dad's sister, my aunt, who I wasn't particularly close with. 
um, only saw her like once every three or four years or so. But I remember maybe four or five months prior to me seeing this article, she had been visiting at my house and she came with her husband. And I remember she had a deck of cards with her and it was a game. And I'm like, will you teach me? And she's like, no, it's probably too hard for you, which obviously drove me insane because I didn't feel like anything was too hard for me. Um, but I kind of pieced things together and I'm like, you know, I think she had magic cards with her and my aunt was very, uh, also nerdy. Her husband was a pewter maker and sold his pewter stuff at Renaissance fairs. Like they were just always at Renaissance fairs. He was very into like swords, if I remember correctly, and like medieval battles and things like that. So, uh, you know, classic nerds, my kind of people. But for whatever reason, I didn't have a super close relationship with them. But I remember I wrote her a letter and I'm like, Sherry, I remember this game. Is, is, was that magic? Is that what you had? And do you have any cards you could send me maybe that I could just finally get my hands on some of this? Because like I said, fairly poor. I was also very geographically isolated. I didn't even know where I could possibly get magic cards. Mm-hmm. They certainly weren't in like the big box stores at that point. Um, and... It was magic that she was playing. She sent me just like a stack of commons, basically. And that was it. I was off. And my, me and my little brother basically played magic uh, constantly from that point forward. And this is probably 90. This is either 94 or 95. I, I think late 94 is my guess. Do you remember what were some of your favorite cards at the time or strategies? I guess maybe Drudge Skeletons. But what, what else did you were you really into at that time? So we didn't even understand the rules properly, for sure. Like, there's no chance we were playing the game correctly. But uh, I certainly remember the best creature we had. And remember, we're dealing with commons, and these are commons from, like, mostly revised legends, antiquities. So they're bad. Like, they're really bad. Um, (laughs) I remember because I also play with my brother, my younger brother, during those times. But please go ahead. Yeah. 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 so, So the most dominant card was wall of swords because we didn't understand that walls couldn't attack right and i think wall of swords is a three four flying for it's either four or five mana it's been a while since i looked at yeah. wall of swords but there was no like defender reminder text on it yeah. and so wall of swords was just freaking dominant and <laughs> those are the glory days of magic when wall of swords was the top-notch threat basically under cost the sarah angel yeah, yeah, it seemed great at the time. Uh, turns out it actually can't attack. So big whammy when we found that one out. What were some of the most uh, heated moments you got into with your brother as you guys were playing? Was it over like, I don't know, if did you guys play for Auntie or did you just play for fun? Or No, we never we never played for Auntie. Um, I, he hated playing against me. Like I just beat him relentlessly over and over and over. And uh, it it would be rare where he was able to win because he was I mean, he was geez, 94. He was six years old. I mean, you know, for him to even be able to understand magic at that point was impressive, quite frankly. But certainly was not playing at anything near a competent level. Not to say I was. I'm sure I was also equally terrible. But for a six year old, that's a that's a big hurdle to climb. I was six years old at that time. So mm-hmm. um, so he lost a lot, was definitely frustrated often would just like give up and like, I'm never playing this game again. Cause you beat me all the time. 
And but, uh, but you I, needed I him to keep I, playing because you needed an opponent, right? <laughs> all I had. That's all I had. And trust me, I would play games against myself if I had to. I was I was that hooked. But uh, yeah, I guess I should have. In retrospect, I should have been letting him win occasionally. Like now, me being more mature understands that. At the time, I would never have let him win in a million years. Right. So that that is a very unique beginning because it's very rare that someone gets introduced to magic from someone who is older, let alone a relative in the family. Because all the stories I've heard up to date, up to now, including my own, is just like, "Hey, I found the cards on my own," or "My parents bought cards for me," and this is actually kind of different. Yeah, I I don't think without her knowing about the game, I I mean, maybe eventually as I got older, I would have gotten to it when it got a little bit more penetration. But at that point, like I said, they just didn't exist in my town. You couldn't find magic cards in my town. And once I knew about it, I found ways to seek them out. Um, but it took some time for sure. Yeah, and now, now I'm really interested or curious because how do you go from beating up on your younger brother, <laughs> playing one-on-one -on -one magic and being super spiky at an early age to let's say playing in your first competitive tournament or, or getting exposed to the world of the larger world of magic. How did that go for you? So again, I don't, I don't know exactly how I found out about this. If, if I had to guess, I started finding literature and the literature at that time was the duelist for sure. Scry magazine, another one that I definitely was getting and inquest and having those three magazines sort of clued me into this, larger tournament world this idea of like focused deck building and i think it was just a probably an ad in the back of scry magazine like advertising upcoming tournaments and i found a tournament in the basement of some church about an hour away somehow i got mom to drive me which was a small miracle probably but she drove my brother and i i had a mostly incomplete Counterpost deck, which is like Wrath of God, Keljuran Outpost, uh, Swords to Plowshare, Source of Will, like a typical blue-white control deck. And I got to play in my first tournament, and it was kind of eye-opening. And uh, I definitely, from that point forward, wanted to do nothing more than play Magic tournaments all the time. The problem was, again, geographically isolated, and my mom wasn't really having it. And I just found myself uh, not not playing much tournament magic after that. It was rare that I got to play a magic tournament. I would say once every two years, probably. Wow. But you, you still kept up with magic, like through literature or just figuring ways to get the product. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I did. And now we're starting to talk like late middle school, early high school and, uh, the internet shows up and I find apprentice and apprentice was a pretty big deal. Uh, for me being able to get back into actual tournament magic. That was the program that lets you unofficially play with card games online, right? Including magic. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I played over, uh, there was an IRC channel where they arranged tournaments. And uh, I found the dojo at some point, for sure. And so I, I still was getting my tournament magic fix, even if I wasn't PTQing, I wasn't pro tour, I wasn't participating in the typical magic scene but i was finding ways to stay involved with magic and that lasted up until probably about uh i would say 11th grade and then i thought i was too cool to play magic and i just didn't play for a few years interesting 
So you start getting more into other stuff. And I recall you got into college, right? You had some good SAT scores, as I recall. So mm -hmm. how did you end up getting back into Magic? You hadn't really played in a lot of tournaments. You were just like playing online a lot and then you stopped completely. So how do you get back into it? Magic Online. I, I don't know where I heard about it, but somewhere I saw an article or something that Magic Online was going to be a thing and you could buy cards online and there would be, um, you know, an actual economy and something about being able to play Magic again from the privacy of my home clicked for me and it released. I think I was there right from the release because I would remember I was living in this like shabby apartment with an ex-girlfriend and Magic Online came out and basically I just spent an entire summer holed up playing Magic Online nonstop and doing almost nothing else. Um, and this was after my sophomore year of college. And I was like, wow, I still love this. And so I spent an entire summer playing. I learned the entire format. And then college comes back around and it didn't really fit again with like my friend group and everything I was doing. And I tried to introduce some people at college to it. It just didn't click whatsoever. And also the poker boom starts happening at this time. So that started getting my attention. And I kind of wander away from magic again. And it disappears from my life one more time. Interesting. So this is before you got super deep into online poker, because as I recall, you you started playing so much poker that you stopped going to class and, and all that stuff. So this is a little bit before that was the initial release of Magic Online. Yeah, this I, if I'm if I have my timeline right and keep in mind, I'm pretty old now. So I'm starting to do that thing with old people where they like, they kind of mess up the dates. But if I remember correctly, after my sophomore year of college, Magic Online releases, I spent an entire summer playing it. I go back for my junior year of college, and that's when poker really gets a stranglehold on my life and when I start going really hard into it. And I spend my junior and senior year more focused on poker than school and leave in my senior year fairly close to graduating to just play poker. Oh, so you were actually really close to graduation because it was in senior year that you left it. I think so. You know what it was? I, I think like, I think it was my senior year in time, but I think I flubbed my junior year so badly that it wasn't realistic that I was actually going to graduate. Oh, you have to do a redo. It would have taken more time. I think so. I, I think that's what I was facing at that point. Okay, so it, it seems like for Magic, it's it had been sort of stop, start and go, start and stop. And then, then how did you pick it up again after that? So I guess the next time I pick it up, um, it's probably about 2006 or so. And I get an apartment with my brother and my cousin. And we're all working restaurant jobs and basically partying like six, seven nights a week and having a really good time. Um, and I don't know what made us go to the store and just grab some packs, but we started just drafting with three people, which is obviously not an optimal way to draft, but like it worked for us. And then it got the fire going again and all three of us installed magic online and we were just playing magic online all the time and doing these weird three person drafts all the time. And uh, so this has to be like cold snap era ish, I think at this point, 
Yeah. And just every single time I would step away and then I would have this little, like magic would make this little inchworm into my life and it would just completely expand from there. And I'd be like hooked a hundred percent. Was it you that really wanted the three of you guys to draft or was it your brother or was it somebody else? I, I think I was always the catalyst. Like my brother still plays magic and like will be at GPs and like, uh, he he's aware mostly of what's going on, but never quite on the same level that I was like, never the same level of commitment. Throughout this whole time, as you were playing magic and coming back to it, were there specific people either in IRC or online or someone you knew in real life that really made a difference to you leveling up as a, as a player? No, no, I'm completely, completely isolated at this point. I'm completely, uh, self-sufficient and i i say that that's with the input of articles so if i'm going to say like who mattered to me at that point it was the people writing content more than anything it was patrick chapin like he was a hundred percent shaping the way i thought about the game and uh the type of style i played and and had a huge amount of influence on making me a better player uh mike flores another person writing a lot at that time whose writing was like super impactful for me so I had no relationships with these people, but they were the ones that were shaping my game 100%. And I say all this, but I, I still didn't have any goals. Like my goals were kind of like ladder-based goals. I wanted my, uh, my ELO to be high on my Magic Online account, but I wasn't trying to play Pro Tours. I wasn't trying to qualify for anything. If you notice, there's one thing I haven't mentioned in any of this. I've still never played a PTQ at this point. Like it hasn't even crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. that that would be something I would do. Um, it, it was just about winning as much as possible and getting the next draft, essentially, like making enough both drafting and playing constructed that I was able to just build my collection for free. Were there certain events or things going on that made you kind of flip the switch to I'm going to win as much as possible to having more formalized goals? So the big one was me moving to Las Vegas. So in 2008, I believe, I, I meet my wife late in 2007, 2008, we decide we want to move to Las Vegas. We do so and I get there and I know nobody and I have, I have no social network whatsoever and I just kind of like wander into a magic store. And uh, I think the first event I played was the Shadowmore pre-release and uh, I do really well. And back then, pre-releases in Las Vegas were like two-day events. So you'd have to qualify in day one. And then day two would be like the Tournament of Champions. And I, I top four the Tournament of Champions or something. So pretty quickly, I started to know people in the area. And they were all playing PTs and PTQs. And it was an idea that was very like foreign to me and not something I considered. But that's what the people I now knew in person were doing. And so I, I then played my first PTQ when I lived in Las Vegas. We drove to Phoenix. And I remember that's the first time I ever played a PTQ in 2008. Um, and I lost. Didn't do particularly well. I, I think my understanding was still coming along at that point. But it was a good introduction to PTQs. And I probably played two or three in the time I lived out in Las Vegas. Who were the people that you met in Vegas that had the biggest impact on how you thought about the game so 
again, it was just more like people I hung out with. It wasn't really like I had a formalized testing team. Yeah, I was I was just there and and just playing and uh, you know a couple of just local local guys were really kind to me. They would lend me cards. They'd let me ride with them to tournaments. And, uh, you know, they gave me a, a group to hang out with. And it's something that I really certainly appreciated. And one of the better things about magic is that it, it can just make a home for you where you otherwise wouldn't have one. And I had people who like had my back instantly just because, I mean, I, I can't say why I'm assuming it's probably because like I was pretty good. And generally like I'm kind of a nice person. Like I'm not a complete asked to be around and i think people appreciate that and they're willing to help you out in those situations yeah and how long were you in vegas for and how long did you play magic for at that when you were there yeah so i only lived there for about 10 months um and would play magic on and off at that time um but when i came back to new york after that and i had kind of like opened my eyes to this world of ptqs and gps I basically told my brother, I'm like, this is dope. Let's just start preparing for these things and start going to some PTQs. And, you know, I think like uh, we'd, we'd go to all the pre-release tournaments and things like that together and just started playing more Magic and starting started to really think about like, oh, maybe one day I want to play a Pro Tour. And it wasn't like I was grinding PTQs at that point. Like probably at this point I had played... I don't know. I probably like get to New York, play two or three PTQs. I don't think I did particularly well at any of them. And then uh, hear about AGP, which until again, until this point, not something I had even considered playing, uh, especially because my work at the time was in the service industry, right? So I'm working every weekend. Um, and, and that's where all these things happen. But there's a GP in DC, and I convinced my brother that we should both take the weekend off and go down and uh we did we went to gp uh washington dc 2011 2010 maybe we're at now maybe it's 2010 uh it's post alara alara Re reborn it's funny how i can track the sets that were released but not the moment in time literally every player i've talked to they don't remember any of the years they just remember what set or what card it was yep that's exactly it, because uh, the the Sar Sarkin the Master no Sarkin the Masterless is the new one Sarkin the Mad the one that only ticked down had just came out and it was good and jund, uh, and that's how I can remember that time period. Right on. So, what was the first event that you played in where you felt like maybe you broke through a little bit as a player? The first GP I ever played, I qualified for the Pro Tour at that <laughs> GP. Nice. So nice, easy start. Uh, kind of set up a lot of unrealistic expectations for me, but I was just like, oh, this is easy. I'm it actually could be kind of a curse, right? In a way. Yeah, it was weird. It, it definitely created a weird expectation for me going forward. Um, I just thought like at that point I would crush every GP. And honestly, for a while, GPs were, I, I don't know. I started very hot. Like probably my first seven or eight GPs I played, I must have cashed six or seven of them uh just really doing well at that level and uh i'm sure it was just variants and also like i was playing a lot of magic online i don't want to make it sound like i was clueless but i certainly was still missing uh a lot of the puzzle at that point well i think from what i know about people who play online i think you just have a lot more practice kind of like online poker it's like if you put in a lot of reps uh, it generally helps you and i think 
the physical tabletop events as we call them now, at that time it could still be pretty soft. I mean, compared to events now, right. where you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I do think that paper play was much softer at the time, and most of the best players were playing uh, a lot more online and. Uh, that's a good way to come up, right? Where you're getting all of your reps against really high quality players. And then you get into these paper tournaments and field gets a little bit softer. And I was able to do well in that environment. And I ended up qualifying for pro tour Amsterdam. And how was that pro tour for you? Strange because we worked so hard on our constructed deck, had a, a great constructed deck. Uh, and so I get there and I four won the constructed portion of my first pro tour. And still I'm like, this is easy. I belong here hundred percent. I'm going to make a run in this tournament and we'll see where things go from there. Uh, and then I owe three my draft and just make like boneheaded mistake after boneheaded mistake. And back then the cut was five, three. So I missed day two at my first pro tour. Uh, and it was, it was hard. You know, I, I, worked really really hard on constructed to make sure i did the best i could to give myself a chance to just keep playing pro tours from that point forward and i didn't really understand how much you had to be well-rounded at that point like my, my draft preparation was not what it had to be in order to have success at that event i mean you prepared right but it's just maybe not enough not enough yeah and it was just on Magic Online and uh, didn't really have a group to bounce ideas off of at that point. Didn't know too many people still. I was very fortunate that uh, Ben Lundquist was local to my area and I reached out to him and I'm just like, hey, you have no idea who I am. Just qualified for this pro tour. I know you're good. I know you're local. I would love to have someone to work with. And he was basically just like, yep, you're, you're in. Let's go. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was put in a group with a, a lot of people who interestingly enough would become a big part of my magic life going forward. Cedric was in on this pro tour team and this is Cedric Phillips, right? Cedric Phillips. Yeah. So that's the first time I meet him and who else was on that team? A few people I really don't like and don't want to talk about quite frankly, who, <laughs> uh, aren't participating in magic presently. We'll just say, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it, it was a good some introduction. Good people. Sure. Yeah. Some good people, some bad people for sure. And it was a good introduction to, uh, kind of the scene and I got to know people and it, it was cool. It was like my first, I, I felt like I had somewhat made it, which is weird because I'm just a random playing one pro tour. But I, I do think I did a good job of getting to know people and like starting to, uh, plant seeds and build relationships, which is important in magic for sure. Was there something that you observed from Ben or Cedric or some of the other folks that were like, hey, I never thought about the game this way, or maybe I, I didn't realize I had to put in this amount of work? I think that Ben had a really strong influence on me as a deck builder because his goal was often to just like find the stupid thing, like find the really, really broken thing uh, at all costs, and then make it work from there. And he did so for that tournament. I, I think like the work, and, and mostly I tested a ton with Dan Jordan, and we just played hundreds and hundreds of games with this broken dredge deck that Ben brought to us. And we made it much, much better than the initial versions. Without a doubt, our work was invaluable. But all credit goes to Ben, who was just like, I have a deck that 
puts Iona into play on turn one in this format, that's like mostly fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Ben at that Pro Tour, his opponent suspends Riftbolt on turn one, and Ben makes Iona on turn one and names red. <laughs> it's like bringing a gun, uh, a knife to a gunfight kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think that was his approach, especially for that event. Uh, and it definitely had a lot of influence on me going forward, like trying to find just busted, busted things to do. Interesting. So, I mean, obviously the Pro Tour was uh, a disappointment for you in terms of your expectations, but did it light some kind of fire for you or some drive for you to get better? Yes, to get better, but not necessarily to go back to the Pro Tour, just because, like I said, it it never fit into my life when... I'm working weekends all the time. I, I just can't. You just can't full-time grind, right? Basically. Yeah. It, it's not realistic. And like, so I would go and uh, occasionally I would get weekends off and play Star City events. And that was great. And, uh, you know, had some moderate success there. Nothing exciting, but like a bunch of caches enough to like finance me to keep going uh, to these type of things and, and not have it be a huge leak and a huge loss. Um, but mostly it's just like, okay, this is not my life. I have to make peace with that. And sometimes that was really hard. Like sometimes that's all I wanted to do was just find a way to devote myself entirely to magic and see if I was good enough. But it just never felt like that was going to be my lot. And, uh, I, I mostly made peace with that and just played when I could. And, uh, yeah, nothing, no real noteworthy successes in that time, just kind of plodding along, doing well. Uh, writing a little bit, I think around this time, it's probably when I write my first article, um, on, geez, I don't even know what the site was called at that point. It's called gathering magic now, mana, some, maybe mana's in the name, mana nation or something, but it's not around anymore or it's changed. Not, it's not around anymore. It's definitely changed. And, uh, I remember trick Jarrett was the like editor of the site. And I just emailed him and was like, hey, I got some words to say. Do you want to publish them? He did. That was nice. And I I got my first exposure to writing. Um, But yeah, just kind of, I don't know, uh, letting magic fit where it fit and not not being too desperate to get those opportunities again. Yeah. Uh, It sounds like you were maybe a little bit more like on the Michael Flores side where he's a world-class theorist, but he was never someone who went to play in every tournament and he was responsible for a lot of maybe some of the ideas, but not doing it full time, if that makes sense. Yeah, that was definitely closer to my MO at that point. Like I was sending people with deck lists to these events and they were playing them and doing extremely well. And that's kind of uh, how I made more inroads into the community at that point. And this is something I totally missed when I was preparing for our first interview a year ago, because I said I told a friend that I was going to interview Brian Gottlieb, and he didn't say, oh, it was what, is that the uh, co-host of the game podcast? He was like, isn't that the guy that made the necrotic ooze in Legacy or something like that? Like, is that is that actually you or was that somebody else? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, there's there's always like, par- what's it called? Parallel uh, development, parallel discovery right? of these. Yeah, yeah, parallel development, parallel discovery of these type of things. So like. One of the things I've learned over time is don't fight super hard for the credit. Like I'm sure other people were working on the deck too, but it, it's breakout performance was when I sent it with a friend of mine to an SCG event and he went undefeated through Swiss and just crushed. And then the next week, Necrotic Ooze was everywhere. 
And, uh, you know, I was using the Phyrexian uh, devourer, devourer combo yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely one of the the first big like deck breakthroughs I had, and the other one was in like an obscure extended format where I built one of the first Splinter Twin decks, and it was like this weird teamer. Uh, I I called it Pester Twin at the time, but Splinter Twin was not a thing basically that was being played, mm-hmm. and I put together this deck that was based on Noble Hierarch into Pester Might into Splinter Twin, so you could win on turn three in a format that was very fair. Like very much not focused on turn three wins whatsoever, but it was also a Jace the Mind Sculptor, Bloodbraid Elf, um, like long game deck, and it was kind of broken in this extended format. Uh, I top forward like the first Magic Online PTQ, actually losing to Cedric Phillips in the semifinals, mm-hmm. um, and then it kind of took off from there. So those were the first two times I, I think my decks started to get on people's radars. That's very cool, and. To me, it seems like magic is so different from even those days, even a few years back, where you could kind of break the format with some brand new brew out of nowhere. It just seems like now it's sort of more incremental. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yeah, I think it, I think it's one hundred percent a fair statement. And a piece of technology like, say, Pestermite and Splinter Twin, back then it would be something that you would tweet about to one person on, you know, Facebook Messenger. And that's where the development of this thing goes. Now, one person puts a Reddit post up with that combo and 500 different groups are working on it, trying to break it immediately. Like that's the first thing that happens. And you're going to find out pretty quickly if it's actually viable. Like what's the combo in standard now with uh, the blue wizard and the green finale, which people were calling the new Splinter Twin, where you cast it for the Blue Wizard and then they chain off of each other. And so there's like a second where everyone gets super excited about that idea. A ton of different groups jam it. A bunch of streamers are online with it. And pretty quickly you're like, okay, this is just clunky and doesn't actually have legs. And you discard it and that's the end of it. But if that deck was broken, it would have been everywhere in a second just from one Reddit post saying, hey, these cards interact in this fashion. It's so fast, the iteration to test things online and the discussions and everything, right? Yeah, streaming has a lot to do with that. Reddit has a lot to do with that. Twitter is another place where that is really, the, the game's just different. Information proliferates so much faster. The world is different. It's not, it's not just magic where this is happening. It's all aspects of life, but you see it in a really pronounced fashion if you've been around magic for any length of time. Right. So going back to your experiences with magic, what was the boundary for you in terms of deciding not to be a full-time grinder? Because was it just like the service industry stuff and maybe your aspirations towards becoming a lawyer, like that was more important to you at the time? Was it like your personal situation with your, uh, I guess now wife, but girlfriend at the time? I, I hate to make assumptions, but it just seemed like if I were in your shoes and I was doing pretty well and in GPs and the events that I played in, I would want to try to make a full-time go at it. But maybe that's not how you saw it. It was just money, honestly. Like I, I, I feel like the fact that my life has been lived with no safety net has influenced so many decisions for me. But there's, I, I didn't have people I could go to if things went south. Like no one was going to bail me out if I wasn't paying my rent or I couldn't make my car payment. And I didn't think I was in a position where I could take this risk where. And and, I mean, I was talking to everyone around me and the people who were doing this thing 
were making a pittance. Like they, and until there was the MPL, almost everyone doing this thing as a player is making a pittance. And until you break through, until you have a name and you can leverage that into article writing, until you can leverage that into content creation, you just are relying on these tournament winnings, which are so, so difficult to come across and so much variance inherent. And it, it just didn't make financial sense for me to, to take that kind of lark where I had like, I'm not going to say it was a, a great job for for the number of hours I worked per week I I did very well um the problem was I just had to work all those hours on Friday and Saturday night from like 10 o'clock till four in the morning and that gave me enough money to live on quite comfortably but it just locked off those those times for me and it, there's there's no vacation time in the service industry like if you don't work you do not get paid and I didn't feel like I had any luxury yeah, I can somewhat relate to that because even though I didn't work in the service industry, my my brother has worked as a a cook or a, a chef in the restaurant industry for a long time. He actually got out of the industry now despite being so good at making food, which I I think it's a kind of a, a shame, but he was telling me how like it's just relentless and he actually developed health problems from from being in the kitchen all the time too. So it's uh sure. Very tangential, but I I think I can relate to a little bit of that just from his story. Right. Yeah, I mean it's it's a tough industry for sure, and there's a lot of there's a lot of upsides, but there's a ton of downsides as well. In light of what you've shared so far, how does that make you feel about the current state of Magic? Where it's obviously it's Twitter, it's it's online, but I think people have oftentimes a sense of disbelief or entitlement, whatever you want to call it, at like, hey, what what the heck? I can't make a living at Magic, but it's it just seems like for you and your path, it's never been about, I can make a living just playing Magic. It's always like, where, where you are now, it's actually by creating great content. So <laughs> I guess in, I'm trying to frame the question as like, in light of like your own experiences, how do you feel about Magic right now and what it means to be a, a grinder or a quote unquote pro? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know how to answer that because I think there's so many aspects to what it means to make a living playing Magic at this point. Like, if you're just trying to make a living off of your tournament results, you're crazy. I don't think you can realistically do that. And uh, you have to have some other plan. If you are trying to make it as a streamer, you got to be real good. You have to work real hard and it's kind of got to be your life. And if you like that and are happy doing that, that's cool. Um, but that's challenging. And to get into my position, it's like, holy shit, everything just went right for me. Like, don't, don't do what I did. It, mm -hmm. It's a dumb miracle i've made it to this place where there's I some can... luck involved right <laughs> it's it's nothing but luck i mean if you if you think about like what my credentials look like on paper and you know the the people who besides me are getting these types of opportunities it's just night and day so i mean i don't i i need to take some credit for it like i need to think there's something about what i bring to the table that 
uh, is worthwhile and has enabled me to do a good job. And I don't want to lose sight of that because I think that's important in like establishing my own self-worth and, uh, you know, just having a sense of pride in what I do. So I, I do feel like there's something I have brought to the table. But despite that, there's no denying just how fortunate I am to be able to be in the position I currently am. It's just everything has worked out in my favor. And, you know, when I wanted magic goals, it was so I could have these opportunities that I have now. And so like when I'm like, oh, I need to win a pro course, so I get to do this. Mm-hmm. And it turns out I didn't. Like I just had to like occasionally do pretty good at some stuff and somehow this opportunity falls into my lap. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. But I, I don't think my path is a uh, is one you can model your own experience after. I'll say that. Yeah. And even if you don't hit fully hit your goals, what did help for you is having the goals, though, right? Because it, that's what it sounds like to me. I don't know if you if you see it that way. I think so. I'm not trying to like make this into an episode like do what Brian did and you'll be successful. And I totally don't think you're saying this. I'm I'm just trying to to think through like is it enough just to have a process or is it a, is it better to have goals in in your own experience? Well, it's it's hard for me to say now in retrospect like how much of this was actually like goal I set out to do and how much of this is me kind of retroactively recrafting the story and that's always hard to say from within our own experiences like I, I know I've met, I mean, certainly we have evidence where it's like me saying to you, James, I want to go do commentary and then I go do commentary. So like there, there's something to it where like I was trying to achieve this, but at the same time, it's just like, I think I stay very open to whatever opportunities might come up and I'm now in a position where I can afford to take risks and all of that working together is kind of the most important thing. Like if, if you were to hold me down and be like, Brian, you have to give some piece of advice to people who want to try and carve out a similar uh, niche to what you have. I All I would say was like, work super hard to try and get yourself in a position where you can bear some risk. And that's tough because I spent the vast majority of my life, like probably... 30 plus years of my life in a position where I had zero tolerance for risk because I was living on a razor's edge all the time. And in the moment, finally, where I had some risk tolerance, I took a shot and was like, okay, I'm going to commit to this. I think I can do this. And it worked out and it's great. And if it hadn't worked out, I still would have been okay. I had a good safety net at that point. And uh, it, it was a long struggle to get to that point where I could take that kind of risk and I think you have to put yourself in that position first before you can really dive into anything or the kind of fear and dread and stress of it all Mm -hmm. will probably consume you. Like I I think that'll ultimately inhibit you from achieving your goals. Right. I think it's very easy. It's just human to, to think of things as overnight successes because, you know, even I remember even talking to Andrew Ellenbogen who won the last pro tour and he was telling me about how, you know, he had played in like every single freaking GP and PT for a long time. So it wasn't like he was a overnight success because he worked really hard to get to that position to get lucky. And he admitted that he got very lucky in that PT. But it's just Mm -hmm. that we often look at just the result and we don't, the parts that you're describing now, like the 
the struggle, the the risk, am I going to be able to do this or should I become a lawyer or stay a bartender and all that stuff? Like that's not sexy. So it's not what people talk about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you also tied up to like the lawyer bartender thing because it was another thing I went through when I was deciding to go to law school and I was, you know, making an okay living as a bartender and I had to cut down my shift somewhat and try and do law school and work at the same time, which is like super challenging. But basically I'd gotten myself into a position where I could take on a small amount of risk. And that risk was just like slightly reduced hours and basically giving up on sleep for two years so I could focus on law school. And it panned out. It worked out in my favor again. And uh, I, I don't know what I did to get so lucky that these risks, risks keep coming up in my favor uh, maybe I'm due for a bad, a bad one sometime soon. I should play it safe for a little while <laughs> just to avoid a, a bad result. Yeah, I wouldn't want to wish anything bad on you, but uh, I, I like how grounded you are. And I think one thing that I also want to ask about, maybe the role that your significant other played in all this, because I think you talked about how you guys met when you were in the service industry or when you were bartending, and then you guys mm-hmm. moved to Vegas together. She must have played some role in these decisions because you know you're thinking about things so i I, maybe you can tell me a little bit about janelle and you know what what she's meant to you and and all that i mean just every i i honestly am getting emotional thinking about it everything she is the perfect compliment to me um we have each other's back no matter what and all these risks have been um carefully considered, carefully discussed, and always unfailingly just met with like resounding support. And without that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm here without her. I honestly don't. I, I truly believe my life was on such a disastrous path that there's a good chance I'm not here. Um, and I, I think that Again, I don't don't know what I did to get so lucky to have someone who's so unfailingly supporting. Um, But the the thing I can say is that it has worked both ways for us. And that's been the most important thing. Like she has found herself in positions where um, she has what looks like a really good job. And she's like, I'm just not happy. And I say, well, time to leave and move on and we'll figure it out. And, uh, you know, she's she's taken on risks as she grows in her own career. And sometimes that scares her. Um, the, the kind of incredible leaps she has made over the past 10 years that we've been together are jaw dropping. And I, I had this moment when I, I told you I was recently in Las Vegas and I was walking down the Las Vegas strip. And obviously there's there's, there's just people hustling everywhere in Las Vegas, right? Like everyone has their hustle. Everyone's trying to get by. And like, I see so many tourists like treat the people hustling with such disdain, like mm-hmm. don't even want to look at them. And, uh, you know, they, they see everything as a scam. And I understand why, like to some extent it is, but like she and I were both out there going back 11 years ago, hustling, doing the same thing. Like she sold like coupon books door to door in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And for her to now be like a high level employee at a major company that I'm not going to name, but a very important one um, and achieving so much to having come from like, having come from that hustle. I mean, it's, it's just you you take these larks, you take these steps, and we've been in lockstep the whole way. 
in terms of like what risks we were going to take, how we were going to support each other. And I, I mean, it's probably something I don't get the chance to say enough. And I'm really happy you brought it up because none of this would be possible without her. I couldn't do, I would have never gone to law school. I would have never done well in law school. I would have never become, I don't know if I was a successful lawyer by a lot of metrics. I guess I was that that wouldn't have happened. And what I do now, it wouldn't work without her support. So, uh, yeah, get yourself a really good wife. I, (laughs) that's probably the best piece (laughs) of advice I could give you. Yeah. Easier said than done, right? It is, it is a challenge for sure. And I'm very lucky to have uh, wholeheartedly won that lottery. How did you guys meet and how, how did you know, how much time did you, were you guys in a relationship beca- before you knew like she was the one? <laughs> this is interesting. Okay, so uh, we met while I was bartending. She came and complained that her drink was too weak. And I then grabbed a bottle of vodka and poured it into her drink until it overflowed all over the bar. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, that was appealing, I guess. I I don't know. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I was just kind of like cranky. and. So she was pissed off and you were pissed off. So that was a good start. Sure, kind of. Um, But like playfully pissed off, I think, on both sides. And uh, I was dating someone else at the time. And I, I don't know what it was, but like I, I would see her at the bar. She would come in from time to time. And there's just, just like this one day where I was fighting with my ex-girlfriend and I, I mentioned my cousin, we worked together at the same bar and he could tell I was pissed off and he's like, Oh, what's going on? And I'm like, "Ah, this girl just giving me a hard time about something again. And I'm like, she's going to think it's real funny when I break up with her and marry this other girl. And I pointed to Janelle um, (laughs) and it turned out uh, I was right because I broke up with that girl like pretty much the next week. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, uh, got in touch with Janelle because she had expressed interest. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I've seen someone, um, but you seem great. So why don't you give me your number in case anything changes? Mm-hmm. And I think I very much knew at that point that I was going to change things very quickly so I could get to know her better. And, and how long were you guys dating before, you know, you knew that this was someone special? I pretty much immediately. I, we just connected like so entirely. Um, and we, we moved to Las Vegas after only having been dating for four months, maybe. I mean, it might have even been less than that. And I had no doubt it would be fine. And it was. And basically, once we did that, and because it wasn't, it wasn't a great experience for us. Like, we went out there at a really bad time. Uh, the foreclosure crisis was hitting Las Vegas really hard. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to find work. And neither one of us were making a lot of money. So things weren't great out there. But, like, we were. Like we had no problems with our own relationship despite all the strife going on behind everything. So that was a pretty clear indication that like things were going to be good and we were very good for each other. So perhaps you felt like she was a, a rock despite all the other things that were uncertain. Yeah, I, I think immediately it felt that way. And I I think, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think it was mutual. From Like we both felt very strongly supported as soon as we met each other. That's awesome. I just wanted to ask because honestly didn't know. And uh, 
That's great. And I don't want to get too much into myself, but I feel there's some similarities in how I met my wife and how she has made me a better person and honestly challenged me to, to do things and has my back. So mm -hmm. Sure. I can definitely relate to a little bit of what you went through. Yeah, I think I think challenge is a big part of it. I, I think that should that should be part of it. your partner should make you grow, um, and and not just like let you be, not accept the bad things about you when they know you're capable of more. That's the best thing I can say um, that she's done for me is that at times where I want to cop out and take the easy way, uh, she's very good at pushing to what I actually want and what's like, you know, partially laziness, partially like. Uh, some mental illness, right? Like depression. She she knows the right times to push me, when to help me, and it's been invaluable for sure. And I know you, you know, you're always the kind of person to look forward and you know how can I better challenge myself. But there's got to be a part of you that's just kind of nice to to look back on this and just be like, I'm in a better spot objectively than I was at that time, right? Yeah, we we again something we do together, but you know we all have moments where like things feel bad something feels wrong you're sad and so we've occasionally gone on like gratitude walks where we just kind of walk around uh our house and our things and our memories and our pictures that we have all over the place and think about like all we've done all we've come from uh all we've accomplished and just like take some time to be grateful for all of it and it, it makes a huge difference. Like if you've never done this before, you know, if you're if you're in a safe place, if you have like a modicum of security in your life, like don't take that for granted. Take a moment, take stock of it, uh, and be thankful for it. And I think it re can really change your outlook pretty dramatically. No, that's that's great. I also want to get a sense for the content part. Is you know you've been working on. Arena Decklist podcast, the artist formerly known as Game Podcast. In the year that I've known you, you've also launched Head Games with Jonathan Carter. Mm -hmm. And so maybe this is a bit of a retrospective too, is, you know, what, what are some of the things that have, let's start with the easy ones. So what are some things that you've been very pleasantly surprised with in terms of either of the two podcasts? I, I mean, with Head Games, it's just how quickly Jonathan took to doing podcasting. And so our, our production is certainly slowed way down. And I think at this point, it's been five or six weeks since we put out an episode. And a lot of that falls on me, me being very busy and, uh, you know, not always finding the time to record an episode. But the podcast still exists. We, we will do more episodes. I promise you that it's, it's not dead. It's just not going to be like the kind of consistent every week type experience that the main podcast is. And I hope people are cool with that. It seems like most people are happy uh, to have something rather than nothing and have been supportive of our need to scale it back a little bit. But in terms of that podcast, I think Jonathan as a person is like very reserved, very soft-spoken. And if you listen to episode one of head games versus like our most recent episode, how much he's come along as just being like a content creator, a podcaster is really jaw dropping. And I think it took him like an episode and a half to really get comfortable and start coming out of his shell. But as soon as he did, uh, he kind of blew me away with how just adept he was at the medium and how good our chemistry is. Like Jonathan and I have only been in the same room together 
maybe four times. And even then, it's often at like the context of a magic tournament where it's not like we have to sit down and have very long conversations with each other. Um, so certainly I consider him a friend now, but it's not like a long established, long standing relationship like it is between me and Jerry, where we've had a bunch of long conversations and we've known each other for a long time now. And I still think despite that, our chemistry really comes through on that podcast. And quite frankly, when I'm like out at a magic tournament, I would say more people want to talk about head games than do the arena decklist podcast. Which is kind of incredible when you think of how far the Arena Deckless podcast has reached and like how big of a thing it really is that the thing that people really want to get into it about is head games. And it, it speaks a lot to what Jonathan has brought to the table and how much people are appreciative of his knowledge. Mm -hmm. I've been a big fan of the episodes as well. And actually, with so many podcasts out there, it's actually fine for me, <laughs> at least that things have slowed down. Slowed like, out a little bit? It just means I, I, I don't have to listen to like 20 podcasts a week. Right. Well, we did it just for you, James. I think what's really good about that show is the topics are evergreen. It's not really topical. I think it's good to go at your own pace for that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's one of the one of the reasons I wanted to do a cast like that. And it's certainly been one of the great things about it. And there's been times, you know, even in the last couple of months where someone's like, I just found this podcast and I listened to 23 episodes in a week and it was amazing. And like providing that for someone is kind of cool. And I, I hope that like jump starts some self-reflection and self-improvement for those people who do really dive in super hard to head games. I'm not really sure if you mentioned this in your guys' first episode, but how did you and Jonathan actually meet and how did this thing get started? Jonathan was a patron of the game podcast, was in our Discord, and just by like chatting, got to know his background, what he did. Um, and basically, I, I don't remember if it was me that brought it up first or if Jerry brought it up first, but just one day, one of us messaged the other and was like, we could definitely do a podcast with this dude. And the other person was like, yeah, I've been thinking that the whole time. Um, so from that point, I was looking for something else to do. I don't think I was writing at that point. So I really was just looking for like more content to put on my plate. Um, and so I just reached out to Jonathan and I was like, hey, do you want to do this? He answered in the affirmative. And then we started brainstorming and basically took it from there. Um, but yeah, see... That's that's the thing that kind of caught me off guard with the Head Games podcast is that I started it under the assumption that I would have all this time to devote to it. And as I picked up more and more responsibilities, it got a little squeezed, which yeah. is which is tough because we love doing the podcast. Um, but it does seem like it's finding a good place as an occasional thing and people are still lining up for it. So that's good to hear. So there's obviously some really good things that have come from the Head Games podcast and the feedback. Are there things that maybe people don't know as much about or things that are challenging. I mean, one of the things you mentioned is just consistent time and schedule to do it. But are there other things that have maybe surprised you from when you first started doing it with Jonathan? So one of the things that strikes me a lot is that people will often come and be like, this sounds like I'm like tooting my own horn. That's not my intention. This is just something that has happened. People will come up to me and be like, your podcast changed my life. Like I feel like I'm in a better place and a better person. And that gives me a moment of like, I don't know if fear is the right word. I mean, it's just scary to have that kind of responsibility 
over someone's emotional state because I, I try to be super upfront and I always mention I'm just a guy. I'm just there like hosting a podcast, just talking. I have no expertise. I, I'm terrified that something I say will be harmful to someone. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're talking about mental health, that's a very real risk. And for people who are high risk individuals and, you know, try and implement something I talk about, for, if, if they were to be met with like really severe consequences, I don't know how I would live with myself. And that frightens me a lot. So I, I try to emphasize that. And if you've listened to a bunch of episodes, you've certainly heard that enough times where I make very clear that I'm not coming from a place of expertise. And even Jonathan has trepidation along the same lines. And, you know, him being trained in his field, I, I think people don't understand exactly what he does. And he can't give that type of advice either. Like he, he can't be treating... You know, people who are suffering from depression, neither one of us should have anything to do with that. That right. needs to be something handled by a professional. And, and you can't really use head games as your solution. Yeah. Um, so, so that scares me, for sure. And I, I think we've done a good job of emphasizing that over and over and over. And also, um, you know, one of the things we tried to do with the cast is just emphasize and normalize mental health care like seeking therapy, seeking help from professionals, we try and emphasize just how positive of an experience that is. Uh, and I hope that's something that stuck with people too. Yeah, I, I think, I don't think you're tooting your own horn at all. I think it's sort of, there's this responsibility once you create something in the world, whether it's a piece of writing or a podcast or even something you said, like once it goes out there, it's, you don't really have control over how it's, how it's interpreted, right? So that that's, can be a little scary. Yeah, and I've, I've felt that a few times now. Um, so I, I try to be very careful about what I say on that show, for sure. What about from the Arena Decklist pod? I'm still getting, I'm still trying to get my head around the new name. I know, James, I understand. It makes perfect sense, but from doing that podcast, everything seems really good. And has it felt that way for you guys or for you while you've been doing it for the past year or so? From from the perspective of like sitting down to record it, it always feels fantastic. Always. Like I can't tell you how many times Jerry and I will just have like either a, a random conversation uh, in the middle of the week or a pre-show chat and it just becomes an episode of the of the podcast out of nowhere because that's what we do. We like talk about magic and we like bouncing ideas back and forth. Um and if we weren't getting paid to do this, we would just be doing it anyway. So uh in that sense, everything's perfect, constant smooth sailing. We had some time over the past couple months where I know both of us were feeling a little stagnant because, like I keep mentioning, we're both the type of people who always want to be moving forward. Um, and that's not to say we weren't putting out high-quality episodes. I think we were. I think we were getting to the bottom of metagames faster than you know most content on the planet. But at the same time... Uh, like our Patreon numbers started trending down for a brief period. And it, I mean, maybe it was a result of a lot more competition in the space. Like, I don't think it's unfair to say that we, our success inspired a lot of people to go at this themselves. Um, so certainly there's been more competition in the arena, which I'm a hundred percent down for. I hope there's a billion magic podcasts out there because a lot of people are looking for something different. And if we're not it, I hope they find it somewhere else uh, and also i know how much fun it is to make content and i i want everyone to get a chance to share in that 
But there was definitely a period where we were like, we we need to find a way to move things forward. And this whole switch to Arena Deckless is something we've been talking about for so long now. And it feels like it was kind of this weight hanging over us where all the other cool stuff we've been wanting to do kind of sits gated behind getting this done. And there were uh, a lot of struggles, a lot of hurdles. I still don't think we have the perfect name. Like, I, I, I trust me, I know Arena Deckless does not roll off the tongue the same way as the game podcast. I mm-hmm. get that. Mm-hmm. I totally understand. But the game podcast was not a functional name for a podcast. It just didn't work. You yeah. couldn't find us. And, right. you know, we're very plugged into the sphere. So to me, there's kind of, it feels like if you know magic, you should know our content. Because it's on Star City. We tweet about it all the time. We have a bunch of listeners. People have our sleeves. You know, it, it seems like we're as ingrained to the community as you could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And then I actually got a message from someone I went to law school with. And I don't know if this person just – I get the sense that they're, they're like a lapsed magic player. And I don't think they played while we were in law school together because we certainly – uh, never discussed it while we were there, but they messaged me later and they're like, Hey, I'm playing a lot of arena right now. I see that you're doing this. You know, can I get some feedback on this deck? And certainly happy to do that. I was thrilled to hear he had found the game. Um, but he mentioned, I don't remember what this was in regards to, but he mentioned that he felt like my content was actually hard to get to. He said he had a very difficult time finding the podcast and he brought up the point that I'm pay gated on star city and so is jerry we're both on the premium side yeah so it it didn't feel like we were reaching this new audience and i felt very gated off from this explosion uh and we needed to do a better job of getting to that and that's part of what arena decklist is trying to do and i i think it's succeeding just based on who we're interacting with in our discord uh who we're talking with on twitter and the explosive growth of the arena decklist twitter account which is just like so many followers raking in followers hand over fist and uh you know like tripled the official game podcast account in follower account despite only existing for a couple months now which is pretty incredible yeah, it definitely is. And it's it doesn't stop here, right? I mean, it's this is just the naming is the name is the name, but there's other things that you guys will have to keep working on to make it more accessible, it sounds like. Absolutely. And there's other arenas we want to be involved in, no pun intended, and uh we'll find a way to get into those things and keep expanding the arena deckless brand for sure. I think that's true of just about anything in life is that it's very easy to get sort of stuck doing the same thing or getting complacent. And I think you guys, right. it sounds like you guys are always thinking because you always have to have that little edge to keep pushing the envelope, whatever that may be, right? Yeah, that's been our goal. And that's not to say we don't have moments of complacency because things have gone phenomenally well for us. We've built a tremendous community. Um, you know, we've garnered a lot of support for our podcasts. Uh, our Patreon support is just jaw dropping. It honestly humbles me every single day. Um, and it would be very easy to just be like, nailed it. This is great. Let's just keep making this podcast. But that's not who either one of us is. And uh, I, I, I'm happy to have a partner to work with who shares that same desire to like keep doing more. It means a lot to me. That's great. And I'm so glad that today we had a chance to sort of not only talk about your origin story and and how you got here, but also how you're 
pushing things forward into the future. So I'm looking forward to seeing some great things still to come from you guys for sure. I'm looking forward to it as well. It's an exciting time, a scary time for magic, a lot of things changing. Um, but on the whole, the game is like healthier and bigger than it's ever been. There's more people playing. It's more acceptable. Um, there's more money on the line at the top levels. All those things are pretty huge net positives. There's, there's been a lot of bumps along the road and a lot of problems and growing pains. And, uh, it, it really upsets me that Jerry's experience in the MPL was not what he needed it to be. Uh, cause I know how hard he's worked to get to that level. Um, so it was a tough pill to swallow when I knew he was stepping away from the MPL, uh, just cause I think he deserves it. But I, I, I do think he's doing what's best for him. I hope that it serves as a wake up call that there are some issues with organized play right now and wizards take them seriously and gets their stuff together. Cause they're doing a great job making magic cards right now. I'll say that. The standard format's great. Uh, Modern's exciting. You've got Modern Horizons coming. So there's a lot of things they're nailing. And if they can get this organized play stuff uh, under control, I think we're kind of getting ready to approach a golden age of magic. And I hope it happens. Are there other things that, given what we had talked about today, that you feel like you also want to get off your chest? Just anything at all? Oh, James, I got a lot off my chest on Twitter today, and uh, <laughs> I kind of, I kind of don't want to go down that same road again. I uh, have have said my piece on what I want the magic community to be. I think we, so many of us, come from backgrounds where we were excluded in some fashion, and. I think it's so critical that magic becomes a place where that stuff gets left behind. Like it, it just should be a fun, enjoyable escape for absolutely every person who wants to be involved with it. And I, I have never understood the mindset of keeping people out of your hobby. Like what is wrong with you? Why do you not like, if you love this thing, why do you not want to share it? Why do you want to make it harder for people who aren't like you to enjoy it? I, I don't know. I'm dangerously close to going down the road that I don't want to go down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I have high hopes for the future of magic and I hope they are all realized. I'll say that. Yeah, I mean, just be the change you want to see in the world and keep fighting the good fight, right? I think that's that's what we all have to strive to be. I think so. I think that's very good advice. All right, Brian. As always, it is a pleasure talking to you and catching up. And uh, I will continue to tune into all of your podcasts and all of your content. And I look forward to uh, seeing more of you in, in commentary and uh, basically everywhere on the internet. That sounds great. Let's do this again in one year, James. We'll see how different things are then. Maybe I won't even be involved in magic anymore. Maybe I'll be like a traveling musician or something at that point. Should be interesting. Oh, man. I don't know if people really want that. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, we can definitely make a deal to just talk in a year. <laughs> It'll be an annual annual The State of Brian G. Yeah. Yeah. I, I It still baffles me that people even want to hear the first episode and now the second episode. So we'll see if there's actually a market for the third episode when that comes around. <laughs> right on. You got a deal. Okay.